Today, our speaker is Louise Miller. She has been, believe it or not, a baker for over 20 years. Um, she uh, is currently the pastry chef at the Union Club of Boston, our near neighbor. She got her start um, in 1994 in Cambridge, where she met her mentor. Miller is a lifelong lover of books and reading. She turned to writing in 2009, and in 2012, she received um, a scholarship to attend Grub Street's uh, Novel Incubator Program. That's where she completed the final revisions in her novel, uh, much of which was written here on the fifth floor in the reading room of the Athenaeum. Uh, a City Baker's Guide to Country Living was chosen by Bon Appetit magazine as one of the eight must-reads for food books in 2016. The Publishers Weekly praised her vivid detail about food as well as her rhythmic prose. And the New York Times Book Review asserted she has a command of craft that makes some kitchen scenes as absorbing as an episode of the Great British Bake Off which I assume many here in this building are fans of. Um, today, Miller will discuss both her writing process and her debut novel. Um, please join me in giving her a warm welcome. Hello, you're all so quiet. I was sure no one came. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you're all here. Hi, um, I'm Louise Miller. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, and I'm so happy to be here at the Athenaeum. And it is true, I do most of my writing here. Um, it's literally around the corner from where I work. And so I find there aren't too many distractions. The three or four doors it takes me to get here. So it keeps me disciplined. Um, and uh, I just love, I actually did pretty much my entire revision that I did with my editor in on the fifth floor here. Um, so the Athenaeum will always be a part of my first novel experience. So it feels very affectionate to me. Um, so The City Baker's Guide to Country Living is my debut novel. And it is the first novel that I wrote. Um, it's the story of a pastry chef named Olivia Langford. And um, after a spectacular accident at work, um, which I will probably read towards the end. Uh, she flees uh, her job in Boston and goes to northern Vermont, which is where her best friend lives. Um, and it's there that she finds a home and family in the cutthroat world of county fair baking contests. Um, since I'm a pastry chef myself, I've found that the most common question that people ask uh, is whether I would give up baking for writing, you know, if my career took off, um, or what do I love more? Someone just recently asked me, baking or writing? Um, and it's impossible for me to separate them. Um, they they're really have become entwined, um, which you will soon see why. Um, my relationship between baking and writing started when I began to take writing fiction seriously. I'd always been a journal writer since my early beginning of life, I guess. I don't know, I have a journal. If I stack them up, they're taller than me. Um, and I always wanted to write fiction, but I didn't really start in earnest until I was 38. Um, and by then, I had been baking for over 15 years. Um, so around the time, I started this novel. I started first taking adult ed classes at Cambridge Adult Education Center, and then I moved on to taking classes at Grub Street, um, and where I just learned to study craft 
um, and just the elements, the novel, and how novels work, which, you know, I did my first draft on my own mostly, and it was really intuitive just from having read a lot of novels. <laughs> so it was really exciting for me to discover that there was actually a lot of um, concrete things you could learn about the process. Um, but as I was studying and as I was writing, I quickly realized that there's many rules of writing and there's many lessons about writing practice that I had already learned by being in a kitchen. So I'm going to tell you my top five lessons I learned in the kitchen. The first is mise en place, which is the first thing you learn when you start cooking professionally. And that's a French cooking term, and it means everything in its place. Um, so mise en place is the practice of measuring all your ingredients before you actually start cooking. Um, this can feel very constricting. There's always this impulse of like, I'm just going to get started. Um, but you don't want to have perfectly creamed butter and then find out you're out of eggs. Uh, so I found the same is really true about writing. To me, Writing fiction is a lot about problem solving. You kind of create a big problem, and then you're solving lots of little problems in the process. Um, and I find, and especially now I just started my second novel, and I'm finding collecting all those major points, um, like feeling very grounded in your point of view and getting the voices of your main characters really in your head, uh, knowing those major emotional beats and the major plot points, once you gather that all ahead of time, the process is such a pleasure because then it's just you in scene, um, which I, to me is the best. I kind of uh, dread the problem solving and love the process of just, I could just write scene after scene. Um, so that is, I, I'm trying my hardest to get all my mise en place done before I let myself get really distracted by images. Uh, my second is clean as you go. Um, I oftentimes, in kitchens, this would literally be my workspace size. It's about the size of a cutting board. And so you really have to, um, you have to keep things tidy. There's just no, if you don't, chaos happens very quickly. Um, and I find it's really the same writing with my drafts. So my process is I like to start my writing day by editing what I wrote the day before. Um, I find it helps me just get back into the story, get into the feeling of, of where I left off. Um, it also, I'm a little spacey, I have a terrible memory, so it helps me just remind me what happened or what I had, changes I had made. Um, and so that's a very helpful, I, I think that that process is not as helpful for people that, who like to work really sporadically and like they can write the middle of the book and then work on the beginning and work on the end. I'm very much a opening scene, what comes next, what comes next kind of writer. And oftentimes, you know, you'll be about 200 pages in and be like, oh, you know, that person's cat died. And then you have to go back to page one and kind of like work your way through kind of insinuating there's going to be an, a cat issue. Uh, <laughs> so clean as you go, keep your manuscript tidy. It's also wonderful because then by the time you get to the end, you know it's not just a mess. Um, that I find that comforting. Uh, my next kitchen uh, tip is uh, the key to a good dish is balance. Um, so when I'm thinking about dessert, I am always thinking about texture. I like to have some crispy things and soft and chewy. 
thinking about temperature, you always want to have a cold element and something warm. Um, salty and sweet always has to be balanced. You know, like acid can help balance out richness. Um, and it's the same with your stories. Um, I don't know if anyone's had the pleasure of listening to Anne Hood ever speak about revision, which is kind of a specific thing. But she has this wonderful process where she actually goes through her draft and at every scene gives it a plus or a minus. Like, was it really, you know, did terrible things happen or did it end on a, a joyful feeling? And she always tries to balance those. So you're having like an emotional, you know, varied emotional experience um, instead of just, you know, down, down, down. Um, and of course, in some books that will work. But, um, but it's also really helpful when you're keeping in mind you know, making your characters really different, even just varying your sentence length. Um, it's nice to think about that kind of balancing. Um, this is probably the most helpful tip if there are any writers in the room, and that is cuts and burns are inevitable. Um, I spend all day with a very large knife and with uh, taking these very large hot pans out of an oven, for some reason using these very thin rags. I don't know why that's what we have. But, um, but it's a dangerous place and, um, and you're going to get hurt in a kitchen eventually. Uh, and the same is true with writing. It's, uh, if, if you have any intention of, of putting your work out there, um, there are so many places you can get rejected from, uh, from magazines and agents and editors and also residencies and fellowships. I mean, you really could uh, make yourself feel really miserable if you want. Uh, I had one week, it was a week, it may have been a two-week period a couple of years ago where I was rejected from four, it was like, combination of grants and residencies and like on the and I really I didn't want to get out of bed and then on the last day I got an offer from a community garden that I had been on the wait list for for five years and I was like yes I'll take it like I just felt like I got something um, <laughs> which in turn that garden saved my life this whole year it was like a wonderful place to take refuge in when I was in the it's a very roller coaster experience your first book um, so anyway, don't afraid. You will you will heal quickly. I promise. It will be painful, and you will heal. Um, so my next tip is about time management. Uh, my, an average day for me baking, I have, usually always have something in the oven, something on the stove top, something I'm prepping to go either on the stove or the oven. There's something cooling. I'm also thinking about what time of day it is, when the chefs are coming in, when are they gonna sneakily jack my oven up to 400 degrees without telling me. You know, there's a lot of stuff to balance all the time. And, and like so many of us, um, you know, if you have a job or children or a pack of dogs or, you know, you name it, um, it can be really challenging to make time for whatever creative project you're into. Um, so my way I approach that is I just really try to keep it realistic um, and then I try to just keep to it. So sometimes that means writing for 15 minutes on my lunch break. Um, and looking for those longer windows. Um, when I first started writing, I was very precious. I felt like, you know, it had I had to have at least three hours and no one had to be home and all the dishes had to be done and my house had to be really clean. And um, I basically never wrote. So 
uh, when I was doing uh, the novel incubator program, which is, um, we can talk a little bit later, it's a very rigorous year-long revision workshop. Um, and I learned in that program to write while I was pretending to be in the ladies' room at work or like in the dressing room or, you know, you know, on the train. I mean, I really, uh, I really learned you can, you can write anywhere you are. <laughs> so it's helpful. And my last tip is really make what you love. I find like my favorite food is by chefs that are just really focused on doing what they want to eat. And sometimes that's really beautifully executed traditional French food. And sometimes that's like the best falafel you've ever had. And that's what they do. They make falafel. Um, so I think it's just really important to follow the stories that you feel really passionate about and, and to uh, just kind of follow your obsessions, I think, is the best advice I could give to anyone. And I find that in any creative pursuit. Like, don't worry about audience and don't worry about, you know, if anyone will relate to what you're doing. I can guarantee that they will. And, um, but it's, it's only a joy if, if you really love it. So now that I'm both a writer and a baker, um, I have to keep a consistent schedule to make sure that I'm doing my best at both, um, which is a bit challenging. So I usually get to work around 6 in the morning, and then I bake until 2. I'm playing cookie right now. Um, and then usually right after work, I come here, and I try to write between you know 2, 2.30, and, and 6 at night. Um, and sometimes it's at home and sometimes it's in a coffee shop because sometimes I like some noise, um, just whatever feels right during the day. Um, but I, it's funny, I realized pretty soon into working on this novel that I actually do my best plotting and my best thinking about writing when I'm baking. Um, it's really like... I've figured out more plot issues with my novel when I was like, I had to make like 10 apple pies and I had just two hours of slicing and cutting. Um, so I've actually worked that into my process. So now it's intentional. So at the end of my writing day in the evening, I actually make myself a little list of problems or a list of, you know, what's going to happen in the next scene? Like, what are the things I don't know? And I just put that list next to my prep list at work in the morning. And so I really try to take advantage of all the time that I have to kind of um, space out <laughs> at work, which is a kind of a, a wonderful side benefit I never would have guessed. Um, but yeah, I just really, I find like my kitchen life is just the perfect counterpoint to writing. It's very physical, um, so I find it it's a pleasure to come sit down for a few hours after work, uh, which I have so much admiration for my friends that work at computers all day long and then go home and write. Like, I just, I would go crazy. Um, so I really admire their dedication. Uh, baking is the best thing. Is It's immediately gratifying. I mean, I can take three or four basic ingredients, and within two hours I have someone being like, yum. Um, writing, not so much. Um, from the first words on the page until the book in a bookstore was seven years, almost to the day. Um, and that's relatively a short time frame uh, for some people. And so um, if you really like instant gratification, writing's not the greatest career. Um, so as you can see, uh, baking's a big part of my process. Um, 
And so my fantasy really is, ideally, if I could tip the scales, I could be writing a little bit more and baking a little bit less. That's kind of my dream. But I just think I'm always going to keep my, my clogged feet in a kitchen. Um, I have a feeling if I just wrote, I wouldn't write at all. Um, but of course, the, my title is The City Baker's Guide to Country Living, so food has also served as inspiration for the novel. The book actually sparked one of the images um, that I carried around with me that sparked the novel was in uh, from my real life, and it was 1999, and kind of on a whim, like as much of a whim as it can be to enter a pie contest, I entered a pie contest uh, at the Tottsville Fair. And so, you know, I just, yeah, it just seemed like fun. So I baked a pie and I brought it to the fair, dropped it off, and I went on the Ferris wheel and I pet the goats and I saw the giant pumpkin and I ate fried dough. And when I dropped it off, the woman was like, we'll come back around seven and we'll have the winners. So I went back around seven. And has anyone been to Topsfield before? Okay, great. Okay, good, a lot of you. Um, so, you know, the kitchen's in, like, the arts and crafts building, which is like a grain hall. It's like a big open room, basically, that's all wooden. Um, and the kitchen is inside, but it's separated by a glass wall with a door. You know, kind of like in here. Um, so when I came back, you know, I marched in at 7, and in my mind, I'm sure this isn't true, but in my mind, the lights were dimmed. Um, and the kitchen was lit up, so it looked like a fish tank. It was just like this glowing space in the back of the hall. And in front of that space were like 100 people, and it was dead silent. So I was like, you know, what's going on? So I walked over, and I'm kind of, you know, looking around, and I finally asked the woman next to me, you know, what's up? And what are you doing? And she's like, it's the pie contest judging. Um, Okay. So then I looked and I realized that what the people were doing was they were silently watching three judges eat pie. <laughs> so I had absolutely no idea how competitive this contest was when I entered, but I learned really quickly. And it happened to be a very, like, a banner year for entries, and that's why it had run so late. So I went back and I went on the roller coaster and I <laughs> just like went back to the fair. And then when I came back, the crowd had dispersed um, and there were a few people just cleaning up in the kitchen. Um, and I asked who won and I had won second place. <laughs> um, and they did this terrible thing. Never do this to someone. The, before, they before they told me the name of the person or before they realized that I was one of the people, they told me that there was basically no difference in the score between first and second place. And so they just had to pick someone. And then I was like, well, who won? And she told me a name. And I was like, who won second? And it was me. And um, so they gave me this very small bushel of apples. And the first place winner didn't even bother to stay. So there was the beautiful first prize just sitting there waiting. Um, so anyway. Uh, so I could not, I carried around this image for, you know, 10, 15 years of these women. And I would just, every time the image would pop up, I would think, like, what's at stake here? Like, what could be at stake? Like, why would someone want to win this so badly? Um, and so that just became, like, a, a to me, a, a funny idea to play with. And, um, and so... Then my main character came and her voice um, 
And so going into the novel, I knew that it would end at a county fair baking contest. And I knew that someone had been losing the contest. And I wrote the entire first draft not knowing why she was losing, um, which was a really strange experience. It was like a lot of like just leaps of faith that it would come. But it did come. And then, again, I rewrote the entire book knowing that so I could try to place little seeds of why that was happening. So I'm going to read, I think... I have two small themes. Let's see how I'm doing. Um, so I'm going to read the opening, which is the accident that gets my main character to Vermont, so you can get a sense of her, um, where she's coming from. The night I lit the Emerson Club on fire had been perfect for making meringue. I had been worrying about the humidity all week, but that night, dry, cool air drifted in through an open window. It was the 150th anniversary of the club, and Jameson Whitaker, the club's president, had request requested pistachio-baked Alaska for the occasion. Since he asked while he was still lying on top of me, under the Italian linen sheets of bedroom eight, I agreed to it even though I was fairly certain that Baked Alaska would not have been on the menu in 1873. But Jamie was a sucker for a, sp a spectacle, and his favorite thing on earth was pistachio ice cream, which his wife wouldn't let him eat at home. I added sugar to the egg whites, a spoonful at a time. As they whipped up into a glossy cloud of white, I leaned a soft hip against my butcher block work table and surveyed the kitchen. Now, I've wielded my rolling pin in trendy city restaurants, macrobiotic catering companies, and hotels both grand and not so grand. You would think a Boston Brahmin private club like the Emerson, with its dim lights, starch linen, and brass studded leather chairs, would have a deluxe kitchen. But no matter what the dining room, or what we in the business call the front of the house, looks like, even if we're tucking duct tape Naga hide benches hugging Tim Rim Formica tables, the back of the house, the kitchen, is always the same. A sea of stainless steel. Tables, bowls, freezer, all gleaming in a cold gray. Whisks and spoons hanging in orderly rows. A mixer with a hook the size of my arm bent to beat bread dough. It's comforting. No matter how many times I change jobs, I could always count on the kitchen. The order, the predictability, everything familiar and in its place. I was swirling the last slope of meringue across the layers of ice cream and cake when I heard the champagne corks pop in the neighboring Jefferson room. Glenn, the GM, sprinted into the kitchen. Almost ready, chef? I held out my sticky fingers. Hand me that blowtorch. The blue flame swept across the meringue, leaving a burnt trail of sugar in its wake. A swell of baritone voices thundered through the swinging door, pounding the Emerson Club anthem into the kitchen. That's our cue. I ran my fingers through my freshly dyed curls. I had gone with purple this week. Manic panic electric amethyst, to be exact. Not historically accurate for a chef in the 19th century, but it's not like I was a guest. With my thumb across the lip of the bottle, I doused the confection with 150 proof rum and hoisted up the tray. Light me on fire. 
Glenn lit a match and carefully set the flame to the pool of rum and a hollowed-out eggshell tucked into the top. In a flash, the flame caught hold and spread across the waves of meringue. Glenn raced in front of me, holding open the doors. I stepped into the room to the last notes of the anthem. The crowd burst in applause. The tray must have weighed 40 pounds. Silver is heavy, and they don't call it pound cake for nothing. Never mind the 10 gallons of pistachio ice cream. But I stretched my mouth wide into a smile and walked about the room, squeezing between the closely set tables and standing with the members as they snapped pictures. The flames were dying down, but not quite out. Sorry. Jamie stood at the back of the room by the floor length windows, his arm wrapped tightly around his wife's waist. Their children were by their side, miniatures of their parents, one in a dark suit, the other in a crinoline dress. <coughs> a light sweat broke out across my brow. How strange that the flames were getting smaller, but I was growing hotter by the second. I elbowed my way through, my biceps straining as I carried the tray above my head, trying to avoid catching anyone's gown on fire. The club treasurer put his arm around my waist, his palm resting lower on my hip than was respectable. One for the newsletter, he said. My smile widened. I tightened my grip on the tray. Jamie looked over at me then, his eyes vacant, skimming over me and then passed. He whispered in his wife's ear. She laughed, glancing in my direction. It was the last thing I saw before the tray slipped from my fingers and hit the floor. So, Libby decides it's time to leave Boston, and she goes to her best friend Hannah's house, and Hannah lives in the northeast kingdom of Vermont, which is very rural. Um, I think the only thing, there's just a little bit in between these two scenes, the only thing you might need to know um, is that salt, when you hear about Salty, it's a dog. Um, but I think that's it. So you know Hannah and you know Salty. Oh, I just wanted to say too, um, the scene I'm about to read. It's funny, um, an interesting experience for me this year is there's a lot of letting go when you publish your first book and I'm sure subsequent books. Um, but it's, it was a little bit of a surprise to me. And, um, and one of the things you let go is how the book is marketed. Um, and so the book was marketed as more of a romance than I ever would have thought. Um, and there is a, a love story in the book. Um, there is a romance in the book, but it's um, to me, it's very much a love story. It's about love of family and love of place and love of community. Um, so, for me, it's it, romance doesn't quite hit on it. So, I wanted to read about my favorite relationship in the book, which is between Livy and her new employer, whose name is Margaret, and Margaret is the owner um, of a little 12-bedroom uh, inn. Following Hannah's directions, I arrived at the Sugar Maple Inn shortly before 10 a.m. on Monday. It was a beautiful drive from Hannah's house in town, up a long, winding dirt road. The landscape changed from tidy painted ladies to sprawling farmhouses, to abandoned trailers covered so thickly with bittersweet vine that only the rusted cars in the front yard would tell you someone once lived there. Then, as the houses dropped away altogether, 
leaving only the dirt road canopied with oaks and maples. I thought I must be lost. Who would want to stay in an inn so far from town? But as I reached the crest of the mountain road, the trees opened up, and as if I were passing from night into day, the world became all green grass against the bluest sky. To my left was the sugar maple itself, a bright yellow farmhouse with attached barn, surrounded by huge clumps of zinnias and pinks and reds, faces turned towards the sun. Morning glories, now dozing for the day, climbed up the side of the barn. Rocking chairs were lined up on the porch. The front yard was scattered with garden benches and sleeping cats. To my right was a wooden rail fence, and beyond it a ridge of mountains with a steepled, dotted valley below. I walked up the flagstone path and hesitated at the front door, nervously picking Salty's dog hair off my chef's coat. Hannah had offered to lend me something, but since I am a size 12 to her 6, I politely declined. I reached for the brass maple leaf on the green door and gave a knock. Margaret swung the door open, eyed me, then looked at her watch. You're five minutes late, she said, blocking my view. Are you sure? I checked my cell phone before I left the car. Margaret made a little huffing sound. Well, you might as well come in. She stepped aside slightly as I entered the foyer. I followed her slender frame, tidy in a navy jacket, down the hallway. <clears throat> Excuse me. I tried to glance at the pictures that lined the wall, but she moved too quickly. Despite her pace, her silver bun stayed perfectly in place. We entered a sitting room, couches and chairs and mismatched florals arranged casually for easy conversation. Margaret led me to a small table by a window and gestured for me to sit down. So, Mrs. Doyle tells me you're a baker? Her papery hands sat neatly folded in her lap. Yes, my name is Olivia Rawlings. I'm the pastry chef at the Emerson Club. Yes, I can read that on your coat. I looked down at my left breast. Stupid coat. Margaret cleared her throat. Now, how long have you been baking? For 12 years, since I graduated from the CIA. You learned to bake from the government? No, no, it's a culinary school in New York. Margaret looked out the window. Yes, well then, tell me, what's your specialty? My specialty? What do you make best? She said this louder and more slowly, as if she thought I were hard of hearing or from a foreign country. I thought for a moment. Well, Chocolate Gourmand magazine requested my recipe for blood orange and sour cherry Napoleon last year, and I was nominated for a James Beard Award for it. We're a simple place, Miss Rawlings. Nothing too fancy here. She leaned forward, hands on the table. Can you make a good pie? Pie? I lifted my eyebrows. Yes, you know, a flaky crust with filling inside. I suppressed the urge to roll my eyes. Well, of course I can bake a pie, an excellent one. How's your apple? She leaned back as well. The hands went back into her lap. I've received many compliments on my apple pie. I felt like we were playing high stakes poker. Or would you be willing to bake one right now? Right now? I did not succeed in hiding my irritation. Yes, why not? Don't need a recipe, do you? You want me to bake an apple pie right now? Being asked to test bake in a kitchen was a normal part of the hiring process for a chef's position, but not on the day of the interview. Well, not this very second. 
Margaret stood. I have to make a few phone calls first. I'll have one of the girls bring you a cup of coffee. She walked away at a fast clip, calling out, Sarah, don't you want to see my resume? I called after her, waving the sheet of paper. She had already turned the corner and was gone. Well, I can't thank you so much. I can't thank you for coming enough. It's really wonderful. Thank you.